Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Harry Stee, Harry Dick John, Harry Three. One, two, three, Ned's Richard Two. Which is where we are at in this episode. Richard II. He was born in 1367. He died in 1400, only 33 years old. He was the grandson of King Edward III, the throne skipped a generation, as his father, Edward, Prince of Wales, the Black Prince, had died of dysentery. Richard's mother was Joan, the fair maid of Kent. And if you remember in the last episode, we looked at the founding of the Order of the Garter, where a fair young maid's garter fell off during a ball and Edward gallantly picked it up and tied it round his own knee. At least that's the story that, that got put about. It's probably completely untrue. Well, that fair maid was Joan. And she may well have been King Edward III's mistress for a while. But whatever the case, he passed her on to his son, the Black Prince, who she married. To the people of England, the Black Prince was this great heroic figure. I remember making an Airfix model kit of him when I was a schoolboy. But to the people of France... He was something of a monster. He'd slaughtered many of them and behaved in a rather unchivalrous manner. And like so many great warriors of the time, he died of dysentery. So if you take a direct line from Edward III, you go down through the Black Prince to his eldest surviving son, Richard, bypassing that generation of Richard's various uncles, including, most prominently, John of Gaunt, who we uh, looked at briefly in the previous episode, but really comes into his own in the story of Richard II. John was born in Ghent in the Netherlands, and Gaunt is an Anglicisation of that. He had a reasonably strong claim to the throne because his older brother had died he was technically the next in line in terms of that generation, but because Edward the Black Prince had had a son before he died, with one rule of succession, that goes to, to Richard. But it's something that's going to be disputed right through Richard's reign, as we shall see. And he ruled from 1377 to 1399, uh, 22 years. Not only is it a rerun of Edward II, it's a rerun of the mistakes made by nearly all of these kings from John onwards in trying to push against the 
authority and the power of the aristocrats in the land who form parliament and trying to lord it over them as the king, the ultimate ruler with, with the ultimate power and always being across and, as I say, pushing back against these various parliaments that try and curb their powers. And Richard learnt nothing from what had gone before, made all of the same mistakes and ended up paying for it. He was even warned at one point by one of his advisers, don't become another Edward II, look what happened to him. But Richard, like all of these guys before him, seems to have thought, well, they made mistakes, they got it wrong. I'm going to be different. I'm a proper king. I'm going to get away with it. And it's interesting when you look at these parliaments, because he went through several parliaments in his life where the lords of the land tried to knock him back, tried to reduce his powers, tried to remove from his court the sort of inside circle, the sycophants, the lords who they felt were too close to the king and were plotting against the other lords. And we mustn't see this as these parliaments acting for the good of the people. This doesn't seem to have come into it at all. It's not so much about reducing the king's powers for the good of the people. It's more increasing the powers of the lords for their own self-interest and money-making abilities. They're always complaining about taxation from the king, particularly as this huge war against France, a hundred years war that Edward III started, is still ongoing. So there's a lot of taxation going around and it's mostly the lords who are getting taxed and they don't like it. So it is about their own power and their own self-interest. And what's fantastic about Parliament is how much it has changed since then. Our wonderful Tory party, who have been in power now for 15 years at the time of this recording, everything they do is for the good of the people. They are the Conservatives, after all, um, upholding the great traditions of Britain and making Britain great again. It's not as if they're a bunch of extremely wealthy elite who are only in government to further their own causes and those of their wealthy friends who are keeping them there in government. I mean, look at David Cameron and Boris Johnson and, and Rishi Sunak, one of the richest men in the country. Yes, I am being sarcastic. But, the, you know, the parallels are extraordinary of how little things have changed over the years. And, you know, we bang on about parliamentary democracy. But you do wish that somebody would get in power who genuinely says, I am here genuinely for the British people to make things better for them. But let's get back to King Richard II, uh, King of England, Lord of Ireland and Duke of Aquitaine. He was actually born in France, the Abbey of Saint-André at Bordeaux, on the Feast of the Epiphany, which is the 6th of January in 1367. And according to the chronicle of um, William Thorne, who was a monk at St. Augustine's Abbey in Canterbury, three magi were present at his birth. There were these three kings, the King of Spain, the King of Navarre and the King of Portugal. And according to Thorne, these kings gave precious gifts to the child. So it's seen as this very auspicious beginning. And Richard certainly thinks through his life that the idea that he is ruling by divine right is absolutely God's own truth. You know, this is this is almost uh, magical, his birth and the Feast of Epiphany, his birth date, becomes this uh, very uh, significant date in his life, which he, he celebrates. He really believes himself to be ruling by divine right. Anyway, it kind of reminds me of the famous scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where King Arthur is um, explaining to the peasants, Michael Palin and Terry Jones, that, uh, that he is king. And Terry Jones, doing one of his... Uh, screechy peasant women says well how did you become king then the lady of the lake her arm clad in the purest shimmering samite held aloft excalibur from the bosom of the water signifying by divine providence that i arthur was to carry excalibur that is why i am your king Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! You can't expect a real supreme power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. 
in that little scene, huge swathes of English history are kind of summed up. That the king actually, in the end, does rule by mandate. We allow them to remain being king. And you see all of these parliaments that the lords call to kind of have a go at the king and stop him from doing things they don't like. And you do wonder why they didn't just say, you know what, let's just get rid of the monarchs. Let's not have a monarch. Let's just rule by parliament. But the problem is that the lords themselves can't agree on anything. They're constantly infighting, backfighting, having a go at each other, going to war against each other. And Richard very much took on all the theatrical trappings of being a king. He was the first monarch to have his portrait painted in 1388. And there he is, sitting on the throne in all his glory. There's a lot of red and gold in the portrait, and he has an elaborate crown. And he's looking positively angelic with his famous big, round, pale face that was considered very attractive at the time. And this attitude that he has of being this splendid king is what causes all the problems through his reign, because he goes even further than his predecessors in pushing the idea that he has the ultimate right to rule and shouldn't be restricted by parliaments and council, um, the lords and the commoners. And this was all confirmed for him when he was only 14, uh, which is when the Peasants' Revolt happened. And Richard's involvement in that was in many ways quite extraordinary, but to explain the Peasants' Revolt we need to backtrack slightly and look at the last years of his grandfather's reign, King Edward III. And towards the end of his reign, Edward was sick. He was weakening. His son, John of Gaunt, who we've discussed, was pretty much running the country in his place. And there were various parliaments. And these parliaments got given sort of nicknames. There's the good parliament and then there's the bad parliament. There's the wonderful parliament. There's the merciless parliament. Nowadays, we just have the crap parliament. But then they were given these names, not by the, the king or, or, or the aristocracy, but by the people of England, particularly by the monks and scribes who were writing history. So uh, shortly before he dies, Edward calls his parliament and that is the good parliament. It is a time when the aristocracy, the lords involved in running the country are considered quite corrupt. And there is an attempt to, as Donald Trump described it, to drain the swamp and various lords are, are removed from Parliament. And King Edward's mistress, Alice Perris, is also banished from court as being seen as being a bad influence. But uh, around about this time, Prince Edward, the Black Prince, finally dies and there's a rush to get uh, young Richard, his son, uh, confirmed as being the heir to the throne. This all kind of happens at the same time. And Edward is too weak, really, to fight against these reforms that the people are calling for. And Richard is too young. Um, so it's seen as being a triumph for the people and, and another step towards curbing the wanton and self-serving powers of the monarch. Richard becomes Prince of Wales. Uh, Duke of Cornwall, Earl of Chester, and he actually presides over the next parliament in place of his grandfather. Always these parliaments are about trying to screw more money out of the people. So the very next year, John of Gaunt calls the bad parliament. He brings back all the disgraced lords and Alice Perez, and also to pay for the Hundred Years' War, he instigates the first poll tax. Now up to this point, taxation has been by household. And as we saw in a previous episode, not everybody has to pay tax. The sort of peasants on the land, the villains and the serfs don't pay tax, but the landowners, the big lords do, and also the more wealthy, smaller landowners and farmers and merchants. But as a way of increasing the tax and actually spreading the burden, so it's not just the highest in society who are paying, they had come up with the idea of a poll tax, whereby it is per head. Every man and woman over the age of 14 are required to pay a groat per head. And suddenly there are thousands and thousands fewer people in England, so it seems, as people are hidden and they don't register. And it, it's not terribly popular. And the problem is that once um, Richard takes the throne, 
he keeps raising the poll tax two or three times it goes up it's made more complex and as i say it is just a way of trying to get money to pursue wars in france margaret thatcher famously tried to bring back the poll tax in 1990 as a way of funding local government in the uk traditionally local government here had been funded by people paying rates it was a system based on property ownership. The bigger and more expensive the property, the more money you pay, which seemed to be a very fair and workable system. But Margaret Thatcher, being a Tory, decided that it should be the same for everyone. Rich and poor should all pay the same amount towards the council because they all benefit equally from it. This was about as popular in 1990 as it was in King Richard's time. It led to massive riots and the poll tax was eventually abandoned. And what's interesting is that it was a sort of atavistic response from the people. There was a general feeling that a poll tax was something bad that had happened in history in medieval times. It was something to do with feudalism. The very idea of it had had a bad rep for some 600 years. Soon after this bad parliament and the first poll tax, Edward III dies, Richard takes the throne at the age of 10. And so the country is run by appointed councillors. John of Gaunt is quite markedly kept out of this process because everybody is worried that he, if he gets too close to the king, he will try and completely take over. So Edward is brought up by these tutors and advisors um, and his favourite amongst them is a man called Simon Burley. And it's possible that they tried to bring Richard up in the image of his grandfather, Edward III, and his father, Edward the Black Prince, who were both warlike, tough guys who got the people on side by constantly attacking the French and the Scots. But if that was their aim, they pretty much failed with Richard. He didn't seem to have any great interest in, in warfare. He didn't want to pursue the Hundred Years' War, and he wasn't particularly interested in hammering away at the Scots. He just wanted to parade around his palace in fine robes and a crown saying, look at me, I am the king. But he is only 10 when he comes to the throne. And so, as I say, the day-to-day -day work of running the country um, falls to a council of noblemen. The people of England are, are, are very unhappy with this state of affairs, particularly as having to keep paying higher and higher taxes to pay for the war in Scotland and France. And there are no results. Now, if Richard or John of Gaunt or whoever had had great military successes, then it seems that people wouldn't have moaned so much. But as it was, they were very upset. And all of these policies really are a knock-on effect from the Black Death, the, the bubonic plague that we looked at in the last episode, where... Anything up to a half of the population of England is, is killed. And that means that half of the workforce is wiped out, which has two effects. The surviving workers are much more in demand, and so they can ask for higher wages. King Edward passed a couple of laws to try and cap this, but you can't legislate against this. It's just a fact of life. If you need someone to come and work for you, and there aren't enough workers to go around, you're going to have to pay more than your neighbour is offering them. And the other effect is there's a huge amounts of land and property that has become available very cheaply because the owners have died. And so there is this rising sort of, I suppose you could call them a middle class, who are buying up this land and they are becoming stout yeomen. You can see this as the birth of the bourgeoisie. A whole new class of people are becoming property owners. And as a result, they're having to pay tax. And as the poll tax keeps going up, there is rebellion. There is rioting in Essex and Kent. And these leaders come together and form a movement, which later on gets called the Peasants' Revolt. But really, they weren't peasants. They were this new class of yeomen. They are not Terry Jones and Michael Palin scrabbling in the filth. Their leaders are, there's John Ball, Jack Straw and Watt Tyler, three names that have kind of echoed down the centuries. So as the rebels are marching towards London, their rallying cry had been for King Richard and the true commons. So it was considered that there were the commons, the ordinary people represented in the House of Commons, had more in common 
with the king than they do with this tier of the aristocracy. Robert Lacey says in his book Great Tales from English History, which is a wonderful romp through our collective past, and I'll quote him, they nursed the fantasy attending the monarch to this day that personally the monarch is somehow without fault. Royal mistakes are the fault of royal advisers, and at heart the monarch is the people's friend. And John Ball was something of a preacher. And, and when these thousands of, I'll call them peasants, uh, although they weren't, when these thousands of peasants march towards London and stop at um, Blackheath, overlooking London on the other side of the river, he preaches this sermon saying, you know, in the beginning, all men were equal. Servitude of man to man was introduced by the unjust dealings of the wicked. For if God had intended some to be servants and others lords, he would have made a distinction between them at the beginning. And he's, uh, he came up with his famous couplet, When Adam delved and Eve span, who was then a gentleman? Gentleman being aristocratic landowner and implying that there weren't any. People were just people. Well, this is very radical, the idea that the landowners, the aristocracy, have no right to be that. They have taken this position by force and everyone should have the same rights. At the same time, there's a growing anti-clerical movement. People are questioning the power and the wealth of the bishops and archbishops and abbots, whatever. And in Oxford, a philosopher called John Wycliffe was teaching that people could find their own path to God without the help of priests and denouncing the worldliness of the organised church. And his mostly poor followers became known as the Lollards. Lollard being an old word for someone who's always mumbling because Wycliffe's followers were constantly muttering prayers to themselves. And this has all arisen out of the Black Death when the people saw how these wealthy bishops were, well, they died just like the rest of us. They couldn't save us. They are no closer to God than we are. So there's a strong anti-religious movement. So it is a time of great change and turmoil in the country. This peasant mob, well, actually, it's quite, it's quite well organised. Peasant army converges on London. And the people of London rise up in sympathy. They go on the rampage in London. John of Gaunt is particularly disliked as being this, this high and mighty lord who keeps bringing in this taxation. And he's behind the poll tax, squeezing money out of the poor when he's the second wealthiest person in the country after the king. And they attack his palace, the Savoy Palace on the Thames, Luckily for John, he's away at the time. His palace is burnt down. This is where the Savoy Theatre and Hotel are now. But then it was this huge palace on the Thames, completely burnt down. King Richard, he's 14 years old. He hides out the Tower of London with the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Lord Mayor of London, and his treasurer and his retinue of knights. They don't really know what to do. But Richard, the next day, rides out to talk to the rebels, which is, you know, I mean, it, it, at the time he was considered very courageous for doing this. And in many ways it is. He's 14 years old, on a horse, he's going out to confront this huge, angry mob. And, you know, half of his knights are too scared to come with him and they, they stay hiding in the Tower of London. So he's, he's not very well supported, but he has this idea that he is King Richard, this divine figure that the people will respect. And Richard does go out and he rides up to Wat Tyler, the leader of the rebels, who greets him as his brother and takes his hand and says, we shall be good companions. And then uh, comes out with his demands that there should be equality for everyone uh, except the king. He can stay as the king, but there will be no more villains or serfs, and church money should be confiscated and distributed amongst people of the parish. And so Richard believes himself to be this divinely appointed figure who the crowd will just inherently respect, and the crowd do inherently respect them. And this is this strange situation that persists to this day. 
And it goes back to that Monty Python thing of like, well, you know, why are you on the throne? What farcical aquatic ceremony has put you there that, that you are the royal family? You are different to all the rest of us. And yet we all sort of accept it. But while Richard is talking to Wat Tyler and the rebels, another group attacks the Tower of London. They get inside. They kill Simon Sudbury, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the treasurer and various other people. So this is all going on behind the backs of Richard. But Richard agrees to all of Wat Tyler's demands and says that he should have all that he could fairly grant. And this diffused the situation. The peasants stopped the looting and pillaging. And a couple of days later, Richard met with them again in Smithfield to discuss terms. It's a bit murky exactly what happens here. But it looks like Wat Tyler was provoked to violence by the Lord Mayor of London. And as the mayor goes to arrest him, they have a fight and he badly wounds Tyler. The rebels could just attack and overwhelm Richard, who's just sitting there on his horse. But Richard is a king. He raises his hand and he says to the rebels, I am your captain. Follow me. And he leads them away to safety so that there won't be this big fight and they all meekly follow. Soon afterwards the London militia finally arrives and the Lord Mayor uh, disperses the crowds and that is the end of the peasants revolt. They have been so awed by the majesty of the king and the very idea of the king being this special person that they have just stopped. They've not surrendered, they all go back to where they came from supposedly with these promises from Richard, but he almost immediately goes back on his word and says, I had no intention of making everybody free. What a ridiculous concept. The Lord Mayor drags Watt Tyler out of the hospital where he's been taken and cuts his head off. And Richard sends out a small fighting force that defeats the last of the rebels in a small battle at Billericay in Essex. The leaders are rounded up and killed and uh, the rest of them are squeezed for fines and money which Richard gratefully receives. So what was the plan? Did Richard know that the militia was on its way and that he was just playing for time? Did he plan to have Wat Tyler killed on a sort of uh, <laughs> trumped up incident? We don't know but whatever the case he did show a great level of bravery or perhaps stupidity, but he was definitely convinced of his divine powers and thought that he was untouchable. But whatever the case, he certainly read the crowd very well. The promised parliament that would see these freedoms granted was quietly scrapped. And that was the end of that particular peasants revolt. But political process had started and we can see the start of the rise of increased rights for working men. And it is the first step towards greater equality. I would not say that we have reached a stage of equality, but we were certainly heading in the right direction and until the Tories took power 15 years ago. Richard is considered a man now. He has won his spurs by dealing with the rebellion. So uh, it's decided he should marry. And he marries Anne of Bohemia, who is the daughter of the Holy Roman Emperor, a potential ally against the French. Uh, the marriage is not desperately popular in England, um, as many of these marriages to foreign women are, because she brings over a lot of people from Flanders who hang out at court and, and annoy the old guard and the people thinking, oh, you know, we've got all these foreign elite they're lording it over us. And also... Sadly for Richard and Anne, and in many ways, sadly for the course of history and the, the British people, the marriage is childless. And Anne dies about 12 years later. And Richard seems to have been very moved by her death and built this shrine to her in St Paul's, which was considered rather a peculiar shrine at the time. He was aping some foreign customs. Richard really tried to make the English court like the French court, which was seen as this splendid, um, resplendent court. And a lot of what he did was to try and uh, make the English court on a par and, and copying a lot of um, French customs and architecture. 
And, you know, there is speculation with Richard, as there has been with several other kings, about whether he was gay. Who knows? He did eventually die childless, and he did have some favourites, but he does seem to have greatly loved his wife. So I don't think there were particularly any accusations at the time of sodomy. And when Anne died, the palace where she died, Richard had it burnt down. He was so upset. So this is Richard now taking control. He's still young, but he starts to reform his royal council. He gets rid of some of the old guard who'd worked for his father, the Black Prince. He brings in these new young knights, this new young blood, particularly Michael de la Pole and Robert de Vere. And he got particularly close to Robert de Vere. Yeah, yeah, a uh, great chap, Robert. Yeah, yeah, me and Robert, we're great chums. Uh, a really good bloke. And uh, de Vere was accused of being a new Piers Gaveston. Again, echoes of Edward II. But the big resentment seems to have been that these guys were not proper aristocrats. They were, they were jumped-up petty bourgeoisie who had been given titles and land by, by Richard. It's, the, it, it's the, the age-old complaint of the old guard being replaced by these, these new young upstarts. And de Vere has even made Duke of Ireland which actually gives him equal status to the king's three uncles, King Edward III's three surviving sons, and uh, John of Gaunt, the Duke of York, and the Duke of Gloucester. John of Gaunt still has power at the court, and he keeps urging Richard to have a full-scale war against the French. Uh, Richard dithers. He's not really interested. He sends in a small force who are defeated fairly miserably. He tries to, a sort of half-hearted attack on Scotland, uh, again, trying to sort of gain some kind of military glory. That also comes to nothing, and he brings his troops back because he feels a bit sorry for them, marching around up there in all the cold and wet with not enough to eat. So this doesn't win him much support back home. And John of Gaunt leaves the country. There are lots of rumours of a plot against him, a plot to assassinate him. Uh, so he goes to Castile in northern Spain uh, to pursue his claim to the throne there. That doesn't come to anything, but he's away for some time. So we've had the good parliament and the bad parliament, and now we get the wonderful parliament, where the lords try to get Richard to dismiss this new inner circle of favourites. And... Richard famously says, I will not dismiss as much as a scullion from my kitchen at Parliament's request. But they threatened to depose him. And it is at this stage where they're saying, you really want to be another Edward II? And he gives in to their demands in the end. He has to let de la Pole and um, de Vere go. He loses his new royal chums. Things are going pretty poorly in France. He decides to try and make peace with France. Not well received in England, but he does eventually push it through, which saves him a lot of money. It means he doesn't have to be worrying constantly about sending troops out there and arguing with the French king. And then he goes off on what is called a gyration around the country, where he's basically just travelling around the country trying to see what sort of local support he has. And he finds out he doesn't have a huge amount of local support. So he sets de Vere up in Chester, in Cheshire, and tasks him with putting together basically what is a small private army. So completely separate to anything in London and anything the Lords have and his sort of royal retinue, it, it's a whole new private fighting force based, as I say, in Cheshire. And they march towards London, but at this point the Lords uh, retaliate. Now the Lords call themselves the Lord Appellants, which means they have appealed to the King to listen to them, to do what they say. And so there is an Appellant army that defeats uh, De Vere's private army. De Vere flees and uh, escapes abroad. So at this point the Lord Appellants decide They've got the upper hand and they're going to push it. And we have the merciless parliament of 1388, where they really come down heavily on Richard. They execute and exile a lot of his inner household and his favourite knights, among them Simon Burley, his childhood tutor and friend and advisor, who was such an important figure in his early life. 
And Richard has to agree to everything they've said. He's still only 21, but by agreeing to their demands and going along with it, he gets himself back in court and actually takes control of, of running the country. It's seen as something of a, of a fresh start. And now Richard vows that he will work tirelessly for the well-being and profit of his people. Ha, ha, ha. And his idea of himself as this grand great figure gets worse and worse and worse. People report him sitting on his throne for hours in all his royal regalia and his crown, just sitting there, staring about, enjoying being king. But there is a truce in France. He marries Isabella, who's the seven-year-old daughter of Charles VI of France, to, to kind of cement this peace. She goes down as badly as his previous wife. She's French, after all, and the French are, are not liked. And in order to gain a bit of respect, Richard goes over to Ireland. There's a lot of ongoing conflict there between the Anglo-Irish lords and the local lords. And he actually does have some military success, the only time in his life that he does. And he does seem to sort things out for the English in Ireland. And that goes down very well at home. So again, he's finally, he is reasonably safe on the throne. He's got the country is at peace. There's money coming in. People are liking him. And for a few years, uh, things are quiet. He gathers some more young sycophantic lords around him. Who are, who are known as the Ducetti, uh, slightly derisively. And again, he's still building up his private army in Cheshire. And then in 1397, he proves the axiom right, revenge is a dish best served cold. And he basically mounts his own coup against the lords who plotted against him before and who executed his friends, including Simon Burley. He arrests his uncle, the Duke of Gloucester, the Duke of Arundel and Warwick and all these other men who plotted against him before and who he has been ruling peacefully alongside. He, he rounds them all up and they are tried by John of Gaunt, who has returned from Castile. Arundel is executed. Gloucester, Richard's uncle, son of Edward III, has been held prisoner in Calais. He dies there in mysterious circumstances. It is assumed that Richard has had him killed because he doesn't want to have to execute publicly a member of the royal family, his own uncle. The Archbishop of Canterbury, who is amongst the plotters, is, is exiled for life. And so Richard has drained the swamp himself this time. And he now believes himself all-powerful, almighty, he threw down all who violated the royal prerogative. He destroyed heretics and scattered their friends. And the men who had supported the appellants were given heavy fines, uh, which again increased the royal coffers. And Richard, emboldened by this, thinks he can do whatever he likes now. Inevitably, he goes too far. And the, and the last couple of years are known as Richard's tyranny. John of Gaunt dies in 1399. There has always been this strained relationship between Richard and John, his uncle, because Richard has always feared that John will try and claim legitimacy to the throne. So Richard is quite relieved that John finally dies. But John has a son, Henry Bolingbroke. Now, at this point, Henry Bolingbroke has been exiled. There was an incident where he had a huge row with someone else at court and they were going to have this great trial by combat. And at the last moment, Richard stops it all and says, no, no, we, we shan't have any fighting here. And he exiles the two of them. And Richard now erroneously thinks that he is untouchable. Instead of giving John of Gaunt's titles and land to Henry Bolingbroke, he confiscates them all, takes them for himself. This goes down pretty badly, but Richard is no longer reading the crowd very well at all. Um, doesn't realise the resentment that is building up against him. He goes off campaigning in, in Ireland again, at which point Henry Bolingbroke leads a small army over the Channel back into England. The Palace of Westminster is empty, undefended, 
Henry marches through the countryside, gathering support as he goes. He gets more and more people on his side who are turning against Richard, including another one of Richard's uncles, Edmund, Duke of York, John of Gaunt's youngest brother. Richard had left Edmund in charge of England while he was away in Ireland, so he was ruling as regent in Richard's place. Now, perhaps Edmund didn't have any choice, or perhaps, like everyone else, he was utterly fed up with Richard's behaviour. But whatever the case, he goes over to Henry Bolingbroke's side and brings his great northern army down south. Uh, there is no opposition. Henry Bolingbroke takes over, and Richard comes hurrying back, expecting everyone to rally round him, but nobody does. He's a rather pathetic figure. He's captured, arrested, and basically deposed. Henry has enough support. He is, after all, descended from King Edward III via his father, John of Gaunt. So he does have some right on the throne. He has himself crowned as Henry IV, who, as you'll know from Shakespeare, he comes in two parts. So Henry is on the throne. Richard deposed. Uh, he's locked up. Various reports go around. Some say he's, he agrees to this graciously. Others say that he's absolutely furious and smashing his head against the wall. Uh, but who knows the truth? He's locked up there. And Henry knows it's all as long as Richard is alive, things are going to be tricky. And there are various uprisings of people trying to free Richard, which are, which are beaten off. But Henry knows He's got to do something. And, and Richard is basically starved to death. Uh, so nobody lays a hand on him. There are no marks on his body. He's just very thin. <laughs> and that is the end of him. If you wanted to sum him up, you'd have to say he was a complete idiot. Believing that he could do things differently and better than his predecessors. And he just loved this idea and believed this idea that he was this great majestic figure. He, he even brings in these new terms, his majesty, the royal majesty, not just his highness. He has a pretty civilised court. He promotes the arts and architecture, writing. This is the time of the writing of the Canterbury Tales, so the, the great um, Geoffrey Chaucer, um, who, as we've seen before, is, is quite connected to the royal court. And just like Boris Johnson did at number 10, he uh, has the Palace of Westminster renovated, tarted up and rebuilt at great expense because he is the king after all. But Richard didn't have any children, no daughters, no sons. So it would have stopped there and somebody else would have had to take over. And in some ways, Henry is technically the next in line. But it's all a little bit shaky. And Henry has deposed a king. And that king was not his father, which is what happened with Edward III and Edward II. So uh, the throne is still pretty shaky. Um, we'll see how that unfolds as we go through Henry IV into Henry V and then the start of the Wars of the Roses. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
And I'm delighted to say that my special guest on this episode, uh, an actual proper historian, is the brilliant Helen Castor. Uh, welcome back, Helen. Thank you. You enlightened me on Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine before. Um, and today you're going to enlighten me on King Richard. I'm going to try. Uh, Richard II, yes. Not Richard the II. Lionheart. Not the Lionheart. Uh, it, it, in many ways, the opposite of Richard the Lionheart, would you say? In many ways, the absolute opposite, although they did have overlaps. Richard II was born in Bordeaux in Aquitaine, which was also Richard the Lionheart's homeland. May even have been why he was called Richard to some degree, because he was the second son of the Black Prince. Richard the Lionheart was the second surviving son of Henry and Eleanor. So there may have been great hopes of a second Lionheart, but it didn't quite work out that way. It all went horribly wrong. Now, the reason I wanted to have you back on again, Helen, is because a few years ago I bumped into you at a party and you told me you were writing a book on Richard II. So my next question is, have you finished it yet? <laughs> I think you've said that every time I've seen you since then. Well, I and want the to read an- it. The answer is still no. Nearly is my new answer. For a long time I just said no and looked slightly weepy. And now I'm saying nearly. Um, so that's an improvement. And remind me why you wanted to start it in the first place. What was it about Richard that interested you? I've always been fascinated by Richard precisely because of his status as the anti-Lionheart. In medieval terms, he got everything wrong. And he got it so wrong that he ended up being deposed by his first cousin, a man of almost exactly the same age, who had all the qualities to be a very good king. This is Henry Bolingbroke, Henry IV, um, who'll be showing up in your next episode, but didn't have the right to be king, whereas Richard had the right to be king and none of the qualities that you need to do the job properly. And I thought this was such an interesting... Well, Shakespeare got there first, of course, but, but such an interesting pairing to have these two men born at almost exactly the same time with their lives playing out in parallel. So Shakespeare, of course, comes into it too, the fact that Richard II is one of his most brilliant and glorious plays, but gets to the heart of this dilemma of what it is when you have a man on the throne, a hereditary monarchy, who is so unsuited to the job that the country actually needs him to do. But he seemed to have loved the idea of being king. Ideas he was great with. He absolutely loved the idea of being king. The appearance, the theory, the ceremony, the ritual, the rights that he had. What he wasn't great on was the responsibilities that go with those rights. I was about to say that he was very good at the bits of being king that involved sitting down. But actually, <laughs> given that... Those are the bits I'd be interested in. <laughs> um, actually, if you think about the royal seal, there are two sides to the great seal of England, and the king is shown on both of them. And on one of them, the king is shown as a judge and a lawgiver, sitting on his throne with his crown and his orb and his scepter. That was the bit that Richard loved the idea of. The only problem with my description is that he's sitting down on the other side of the seal as well. It's just he's <laughs> sitting on a war horse with his sword unsheathed to defend the realm against all comers as a military leader. That kind of sitting down was what Richard was very not keen on. And I mean, other than riding out against what Tyler, did he ever ride into battle? His misfortune was to be born into a war that had already been going on for decades, which his grandfather, Edward III, and his father, the Black Prince, had been absolute stars of. It was a war with France that had been going England's way for decades until the 1370s, when his, both his grandfather and his father became ill and both died, his father first and then, and then his grandfather. And is it fair to say that he didn't really have any interest in pursuing the war? He didn't, and the 13 late 1370s and into the 1380s are really in some senses a story of the noblemen around him who, because he was very, very young, he was 10 when he became king, were trying to keep the war going until Richard was big enough to take over. And when it became clear that he wasn't really showing many signs of taking over, trying to usher him gently forward and encourage him. So there are these wonderful repeated 
attempts, well, not wonderful if you were there at the time, to get him onto a horse out in front of soldiers, even if he wasn't quite old enough to command yet, you know, just to to make a start. And there was a moment in 1383 when trouble had erupted in Flanders, uh, which was crucial to the English wool trade, and France was moving in in a big way, trying to take over in Flanders. And so the nobles around Richard were trying to get money out of Parliament for a campaign, trying to say, no, of course, the king will lead the army. And there's this wonderful line in one of the chronicles after this has all turned into a bit of a damp squib. It says in Latin, rex laborare noluit, which means the king did not want to, well, laborare means either to work or to go, but in Richard's case, neither. He didn't want to go. And so the campaign turned into a damp squib. Meanwhile, the King of France, who was two years younger than him, so an even younger teenager, was having a whale of a time uh, riding out with his army. That made Richard very cross. And at one point, when he, it became clear that the King of France was, you know, getting it all his own way in Flanders, Richard, in a rage, rode through the night down back to London, he'd been travelling in his realm, to say, I am going to go and get this young whippersnapper, I'm going to lead soldiers. He rode so hard through the whole night that by the time he got to Westminster, he was exhausted and decided that was really quite enough. Did he, did he um, come up with another fancy Latin phrase to gussy it up, <laughs> make it look like, oh yes, that's a special thing he did. I think what he was just... It? Rex? <laughs> Rex laborare noluit, the, the king didn't want to go is what the, I, shall the, to, I shall have to adapt that for my own use <laughs> that's when i don't want to do something the well you know the famous in. phrase exactly <laughs> the king is not available <laughs> so i mean in terms of you know richard liking sitting down being king i mean there is that observation from somebody at the time saying he used to just like sitting on the throne in all his regalia staring into space that's quite a lot later on. That's in the 1390s. But in a way, one could see Richard's reign as the gradual evolution of that specialism in kingship, looking as grand as possible, doing as little as possible. But it's not a kind of empty doing nothing, because it's a kind of doing nothing that becomes extraordinarily oppressive for his subjects. First of all, there's the problem that whether Richard likes it or not, the war is going on. And it's not simply something that with a wave of his hand he can choose to ignore because the South Coast is getting burned by French raids. This is happening even before his coronation. The war is going so badly that after decades in which the English had been fighting on French soil, the French are now turning up in ships and burning bits of England. So he can't simply pretend it isn't happening. But every effort that his subjects make to get him to focus on it, to get him to realise that something needs to be done, he takes as an affront to his, what he is increasingly calling his majesty. Kings were not, before Richard's reign in England, generally called your majesty. They were called my lord, my lord the king. Richard liked to up the ante on not only ceremony but titles. So, oh, why, um, why do you think all these kings continually made the same mistake? of saying, look, I'm king, you can't tell me what to do. Because so, it had gone so badly wrong for so many of them. On the other hand, some of them get it very right. Edward III had got it very, very right. Yeah, if you like being on a horse with a big sword, you can maybe get away with it. it well, but also, <laughs> Edward listened. Edward realised that the best way to be in charge was to actually take problems seriously and listen to good advice and then work out what the best thing to do to solve them or to get round them was. Which and seems was, very sensible, but doesn't so, it? so why and didn't Richard learn from that? Well, this is part of... I, I tend to feel that Richard's reign is a good demonstration of how if you're bringing up a future king, the sentence, he's not the Messiah, he's a very naughty boy, <laughs> is quite an important one to bear in mind because... Edward III had had a very pointed political education, watching his own father's reign fall to pieces, Edward II. And Edward III, who was a very able man, learnt those lessons and learnt the lessons of his early reign very, very quickly. Helped, as you say, by the fact that he did actually enjoy uh, riding a war horse and um, beating people up. That was a useful thing if you're a medieval king. But there were other models of kingship that... If you if you were less good at that, you could go for the sort of Solomonic 
wisdom, I will preside as other people do the But, but you still have to listen to... You have advice. to listen. So do you think it all went wrong with Richard Wright from the start, with this idea that he had this Christ-like birth with the three kings, the three magi in attendance? I mean, was it a case of too much, too young? He became king at the age of just 10. And by that stage, the, the nobles were very anxious about the fact that the Black Prince, his father had just died, Edward III had just died. And in order to try to settle the realm, they had a habit of bringing him into Parliament and saying, look, it is as though Christ is among us. Um, not quite realising there was a 10-year-old boy listening to what they were saying. Uh, he, he then is crowned at 10. We've only recently seen what a coronation looks like in 21st century England. But if we spool back centuries to uh, 1377, it was a ceremony of the deepest possible spiritual resonance uh, and meaning. And the idea of being anointed by God to lead your people was one that at 10, Richard imbibed very deeply. And then at 14, the peasants are revolting. They are complaining about every aspect of government except him. They are saying everything's been going wrong. We need a wholesale reboot of government. But the man we want to be in charge is our 14-year-old king. He's the one who'll look after us. And Richard seems to have taken that lesson quite seriously too. None of these were helpful because they were all reinforcing the idea that whatever he said was right and if anyone stood up to him, they were de facto wrong. That's what happened in 1386 when in the course of a parliament where his subjects were trying to say, sire, um, there's a French fleet about to sail across the channel to invade the biggest fleet since 1066 was just across the channel. Invasion terror at its height. London preparing for a siege. Soldiers being mustered all across the country. In Parliament, they're saying, we've got to do something about this. The Chancellor needs to go. King Richard, what, what are you going to do about this? And Richard's response? I would not dismiss a scullion from my kitchen at your request. And if you keep telling me to do things, I'm going to ask my friend, the King of France, for help against you. Now, with a French fleet about to invade, <laughs> that is a sign of just how wrong <laughs> Richard has got things already at this early and, and stage. And remind me what happened to that fleet. Was it, it didn't turn up. It did didn't it? turn up. It was actually too big for its own good. They just kept mustering more ships and more men. Meanwhile, the autumn was pushing on. The weather was getting worse. When they eventually tried to get the men and the supplies onto the ships, it took a whole week to get the men and the supplies onto the ships because there were so many of them. And then they waited for a wind and they waited for a wind and the weather didn't turn and then the weather got much worse and they realised it wasn't going to work. It was November. They were going to have to try again another time. So the invasion got timed out, but that was only England's good luck. Uh, it wasn't anything to do with Richard's kingship. That that we seem to have been saved by the Channel many times. Many times. In history. Many times. <laughs> <laughs> and is it fair to say that his great moment at the age of 14 dissipating the peasant revolt was the sort of highlight of his life and it was all downhill from there. In retrospect, it very much looks like that, doesn't it? I think Richard spent a long time trying to recapture that moment, the sense that he should be able simply to ride out before his people, be acclaimed as their leader, hush them with a gesture and have them obey his every word. What comes out as his reign goes on is that what he was looking for was peace. Now, partly by that, he meant the end of the war with France because he was not interested in fighting it. And actually, he was much keener on seeing the King of France as his brother in sovereignty rather than, you know, who would understand because he was another king rather than uh, someone to fight. But the longer he went on, it became clear that Rich, what Richard meant by peace was stillness among his people that was born of absolute obedience, that no one would move a muscle unless they had his say-so. And his way of achieving that was, in a sense, to try to enforce it by any means necessary, because he believed that the law, as was said in, at the moment of his deposition, the law was in his own mouth. So rather than law being something that you use to bring good order to your kingdom, but if you put it in place, you have to kind of acknowledge it yourself. Instead of that, he could set rules for anybody, everybody else, 
but he of course was above and beyond them and that it turns out is not a recipe for um, everlasting peace whatever he may have hoped and uh, have you found in writing your book and spending so long with Richard <laughs> sorry to to bang on about how long it's taken you but have you changed your opinion of him I mean have do you feel I mean, it's so hard after so many hundreds of years that you've got to know him as a person. I do, rightly or wrongly, I mean, people will disagree with me, obviously, but for me, I do feel that I've come to a sense of what was driving him and how he related to people. And to be honest, it's been both helpful and resonant looking at the course of contemporary politics because it seems to me that one of the keys to Richard is what happens when profound deep-seated narcissism is in play at the very top level of politics. Um, A sense that other people's interests are not real or significant but only what the leader wants and when that can be played out in the most grandiose way uh, it is extraordinarily damaging but the narcissists themselves can't see what it is that they're doing so so do you think Richard's a bit of a Liz Truss figure (laughs) (laughs) he lasted a lot longer than Liz Truss at the top (laughs) I would say Um, I think there are various contenders uh, possibly for points of comparison I I will I will I will just read you one of my favorite quotations from Richard which he uh, it, it's the the sense uh, you know, gathering towards the end, what we know is the end of the reign. Richard thinks he's winning. As he goes on, he's destroying his enemies piece by piece. He thinks he's winning, but we, of course, know that he's getting closer and closer to the point where he's alienated absolutely everybody and his overthrow is imminent. But um, in 1397, when he has just finally wreaked his revenge on the nobles who'd stood up to him 10 years earlier and and he's now destroyed them and he he feels he's finally on the road to the power that he he um has has been his right all this time he writes a letter to the duke of bavaria another ruler who will understand and he says future generations however young they may be must know what it is to offend the royal majesty for he is a child of death who offends the king? So, so that's that's the <laughs> that's the mode in which yeah, he was well, operating self, by that, that stage. Belief and as you say that that complete lack of self awareness and proper understanding of what's actually happening. And is and and of course, once Henry Bolingbroke actually stands up to him, which he does because Richard has pushed everything too far. He's made promises and then broken them. He has exiled Henry, promising he can have his inheritance. And then when Henry's father finally dies, no, you can't have your inheritance after all. At which point, what's Henry got to lose? He comes back to challenge him. And Richard falls apart. Richard has no resources on which to fall back. He has lost such sight of reality as he ever had. His his idea of kingship is to speak and it will be done. And if speaking stops working... He's out of ideas. Well, there's a lesson for us all, and particularly a lesson for our politicians. What you do is a hell of a lot more important than what you say. Always great to talk to you, Helen, and I very much look forward to the book coming out. So do I. So thank you very much to Helen Castor, and look out for Helen's book on Richard II, but also check out her book that we've talked about before she-wolves all about the various powerful medieval queens the next episode launches us fully into shakespearean territory as we look at what happens when henry bolingbroke takes the throne as henry the fourth and we get into another troubled reign follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson, 2023.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.